Hey, I'm David Greenwald. And I'm Dom Sinicola. And this is Pretty Little Grown Men, the Podfectionists. All right, Dom. So we're back with another episode of Pretty Little Liars, the Perfectionists, uh, episode three of the season. How are you feeling after last week's uh, sudden uh, turn change of heart? <laughs> um, yeah, pretty good. This is a pretty uh, 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 nice and efficient episode. Move the plot forward, get to know the characters, bring them closer together. Um, as we just discovered, uh, the episode was written by Charlie Craig, who um, I think got nominated for an Emmy or maybe even won one for writing a third season um, episode of The X-Files. Which is really intriguing because, or actually coincidental, because just as we were looking this up, um, a bare, the Bare Naked Ladies song, One Week, came into my mind, mm-hmm. and I was singing a little bit of that as we were prepping our microphones, and that has a line, watch the X-Files with no lights on. Yeah. Hope the smoking man's in this one. Exactly. <laughs> well, that's it's interesting because we always bring up you know the X-Files and Lost and these sorts of serial dramas, so it's actually pretty amazing that the show got somebody who was an X-Files writer to mm-hmm. write for this you know college kid sex drama. Yeah, seriously. I mean, it did feel like uh, it felt like the first time that the show was uh, starting to I don't know try to figure out what it exactly it's doing mm-hmm. and where it's going. Um, sort of cut out all the side characters, all of your your Eddie Redmaynes and your assorted uh, boyfriends, and just get to the nitty gritty of like, okay, we got to bring these characters together, and they have to have a purpose. They have to they like they have to have a besides grieving and or being worried about their secrets getting out, they have to have like some sort of drive that pushes them through the rest of the season. Right. I thought this episode, so I like this episode a lot and I thought it did a few things well. And there were a few things it did that were pretty interesting. Uh, one is that we did not get as much Allie and Mona, which I think is, although I would like to see more of them, I think is necessary because we need to get to know these new characters more. We need to care more about them. Mm. And this episode did a good job of giving them more personality. Um, especially Ava who gets this great comedic centerpiece where she's like, getting drunk and trying to record this YouTube video for Vogue, mm-hmm. which is like a great scene. Right. And so you're like connecting to this character and you're thinking, Oh, okay. Uh, maybe I care about these characters a little bit, which is what we want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As far as Ellie and Mona goes, Mona basically spent the whole episode, uh, sitting in front of a computer screen, furrowing her brow and, uh, Allie just sort of went through. Mo- well, so one of the things that you mentioned while we were watching it is the way that they've set this, the way that the mystery is being set up on the show is is strange because we have so many answers, uh, and you know it's it's like the obvious obviously the so far the main um, antagonist is Dana Booker, you know f- former professional law enforcement officer now uh in the private sector but apparently <laughs> uh 
seems to have as as much control over this case as any person who is still professionally in the law enforcement. Because there are literally no cops whatsoever. Listen, I know. On this campus. You know what? I'll be the first person to say that the Portland Police uh, uh, Department is a bunch of fascists, and so I'm glad that they're not uh, not being portrayed in any sort of positive light on this TV show. But come on, you're telling me that uh, n- like no, like just there is no police presence on this TV show. There is a fucking murder at this elite institution, and there is no. Like, there's no police officer who's coming in and being like, uh, no, listen, security officer for weird private uh, um, surveillance firm. Uh, you know, you can't take over this right. investigation. Well, it gives you it's an interesting choice because it gives you the sort of claustrophobia effect of like people from outside the college are not coming to save you, you mm-hmm. know. Right. But of course, in Pretty Little Liars, it's like the cops were always there and they were potentially had been infiltrated or were crooked cops or, or whatever it was. So it's not like they were so helpful in the, right. in the PLL verse previously, but I think it does have first, if you can get over the ridiculousness of it, it does have the effect of being like everyone's trapped on this campus because something else we talked about was like, why does Allie not just like peace out? And part of it is like part of the horror movie effect. And I don't think this show's actually trying to be scary really at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but part of the horror movie effect is like trying to keep it claustrophobic in a sense of you mm-hmm. can't leave here. You are, you have this limited scope of places you can go, you know, which is also what happens when you're filming on a set in like somewhere out in uh, on a warehouse in Portland, but well, you know, yeah, but even more so with this show, because like at least with pretty little liars, you had, um, you know, they would go out to dinner, they go to the Ezra's book hole, you know, or, or like some, some place where they can h- hang out in public with other people around. And they don't do that on this show. Like they own the, the most public places they go are to like the student union or to the student cafeteria. Um, you never see them off campus doing like things in society, it, it which only exacerbates that feeling of them being like on like on this weird island right you know? right being watched by five million security cameras and the secret people under uh under the ground so this is something mm-hmm. that you brought up when we were watching mona is sitting there trying to get at her password access so she can track down what's going on and she's telling this to ali but we also see her sitting at the computer trying to get back in and it's like how much does she know or not know? Because we know she's like talking to people in the mirror who are, who are chilling in this giant bunker. Like how, what, what is she even doing? Is she working for something beyond the school? Is this part of the school? Like what, Mona's whole deal is wild. I don't really know what's going on. What's her job? She apparently has enough time to just sit at her computer all day. Like, essentially trying to hack into the system that also employs her, I guess. I don't know. Right. Yeah. That seemed, it's very confusing. So Mona works for the admissions office, I guess. Right. But also for maybe the like secret conspiracy, Mm -hmm. but it's like, why is the secret conspiracy not just telling her what's going on? Right. You know? So the whole thing, the whole thing of what's going on with Mona is very confusing. I think like maybe the most confusing thing of what's going on because everything else I mean, like you said, we know Taylor Hotchkiss is alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this episode, Allie basically figures it out, which is nice. Yeah. And it's like, this is episode three. 
Like you've already done the big reveal. You've done the big mystery solving. Uh, and at the same time you have the perfectionists, you know, saying we're going to stick together and we're not going to let the, uh, the, the cop lady tell us what to do and you know, what, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But in the very next scene, after the opening scene where she's like going after them, um, she's having a meeting with Claire Hotchkiss and she, watching video of them just like chilling mm-hmm. uh, the night that Nolan was killed. And being right. like, yeah, they were not at Allie's house. They're just off doing whatever and probably did some murders, you know. So they they are in deep shit. And we so and we as the audience know that. Yeah. So that is a crazy thing. To There's a lot out. of dramatic irony on the show. Yeah. But it's like a crazy thing to put out in episode three and be like, listen, these characters are basically up against insurmountable odds. Mm-hmm. They're screwed. Yeah. You know? And so it's interesting to me to be like, how is the show, instead of doing what it did with PLL, where it sort of had these things going forever and ever and ever, it's just basically put it out and been and uh, left a lot fewer, uh, I guess, hanging threads. Mm-hmm. And so now the hanging thread is like, how is the show going to sort of get itself out of this situation. Like what are these characters going to do since we know that they're, they basically completely have the lower hand. Yeah. I'm going to say two things. One is that, uh, to go back to, uh, Dana Booker having full access to apparently all of the archives of the beacon. And so can essentially like get the full story, the full surveillance story of these kids, uh, with whatever chronological scope she wants. And she zeroes in on the time that basically the, around Nolan's murder that basically ruins their alibi. But she looks at it and she's like, and she's showing this to Claire and her response is they, they look suspicious. They're, they're acting suspiciously. And it's like, you were in the fucking FBI. Right. Like that, right. You think that they're acting suspiciously is going to hold up in fucking court? Like what kind of like, where are your goddamn policing skills? Right. She's just like <laughs> operating completely on instinct. Like, I don't know about these nosy kids. It's like, oh, man, it's, the BHU is really getting their worth out of you. Um, the other thing is that uh, I like the idea of maybe... I'm not saying the show's going to do this because who knows what the show's going to do. But um, one of the things that I really liked about uh, a show uh, that just popped in my head when we were talking about it was about uh, uh, the show was Veronica Mars. And one of the great things about that show is it had self-contained stories for each season or self-contained like mysteries that, you know, Veronica solved and it it went over the arc of the whole season. So... um, you didn't have this like long mystery that stretched out over a bunch of seasons. Uh, and every, every mystery like informed the next season, you know, both character arcs and the trauma that they experienced through this, through the previous stories. But I like the idea of like, like what if the perfectionist just had like a self-contained story for each season and you get to watch these characters, almost like Harry Potter. Almost, you could watch these characters. They have they have four playing seasons for each year of college, and then once their senior year is over, then the show's over. That'd be cool. I like that idea. That would be cool. You know, then they have they have, they have four seasons to get as cram as many stories as they can. You get to watch these characters mature through basically the most formative years of their lives, and then uh, and then we're done with it. You know. I don't think that's the plan, though. <laughs> Probably not. I don't think that's where we're going. Um, I mean, what, what's the, what's the mystery right now? So, 
it's well, it's, that's the funny. The mystery like, is like who killed Nolan. That's it, right? Well, the mystery is right. I mean, the mystery is like why? Who is the? Well, I guess the bigger mystery, the the meta mystery that the audience is in on, is like who is the X Files conspiracy group mm-hmm. watching everyone? Right. What is this thing that Taylor Hotchkiss is on the run from? Yeah. that she faked her own death to evade. Right. Like, what the hell is that? And something that PLL did, which I thought was always murky, was that you didn't know if the liars were like the main target or if there was like a bigger thing happening with like the reason that Ali had had disappeared or like who was Mona working for and all this kind of bigger stuff of like, why are the liars being tortured? And ultimately, I mean, the show did end up centering in on the liars and making them like the reason, the motive, right? Or they were like the motivation for these, uh, for like the super villains of the show. But on this show, I think they have sort of, uh, pulled back the curtain more and been like, no, here is a bigger thing that you don't even know about that. The perfectionists don't even know about, like they're out dealing with rats in their cars. And you know that this great, much crazier thing is happening. So that to me is interesting, but it also makes the sort of, uh, minor mystery that the a story of the what the perfectionists are dealing with it's like okay this is like very dinky like you found a rat in your car you were like looking in a a garden like a a, a, you know looking through a greenhouse for like a box or whatever like this is not more interesting than the bigger story than Mm -hmm. the giant surveillance story so it's like how is the show going to what's the point of doing that Right. Like what, it, where's the show going to go with it and surprise us? And just like the possibility of how the show might surprise us and like solving this as like a narrative puzzle is kind of the most interesting thing about the show to me. Cause they've set up like a lot of, they, they've set up the show in a very different way than PLL. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I need to add a, a, a personal anecdote to the dead rat. Cause, uh, we have, um, or had or have, I guess, uh, Attic rats, which is a pretty common occurrence, I think, in uh, for a lot of homeowners. Um, enough that you know when you Google it, it pops up pretty quickly. Because um, rats can get into a lot of like if your attic is unfinished, which most attics are unfinished, they can get in pretty quickly or easily. And um, so, uh, uh, long, extremely long story short um we ended i ended up putting traps in the in the attic and um uh i'm also pretty like anxious about um dead rats in general and so i put the rat put the traps up in the attic and then like just like dreaded going up to look to see what happened right and just waiting for the smell the first time well the first time uh, we got a, a rat i went up and i found it like the day after i put put it there and there's a there's a a rat in the trap and so I disposed of it uh which was gross it was it's it's fucking gross um and I'm not going to like pretend that I'm like okay with any of this like it's it's fucking gross and I I'm like I anxiously dread going up to the attic to look at the traps because I just like I've seen I've seen enough dead animals to know what it looks like but it's just like the thought of it just like fucking freaks me out I don't know why but so we went and we took a trip recently and I set the trap before we left and then we came back and uh, Re- Rebecca was 
complaining of a smell that she kept smelling. And I, in, in the back of my head, I was like, oh, my God, I bet you it's a rat. Um, but I didn't want to, to admit that it was a dead rat in our attic. And so I was, like, cleaning out the fridge and all this stuff, trying to find the smell. And then eventually I was like, I got I to do it. I got to go up to the attic. And I went up and I got there and I was like, that's that's what a rotting dead rat smells like. It smells like. And I picked up the rat to, like, put it to dispose of it. Oh, no. And uh, trigger warning for some people. Uh maggots started falling out oh, of the rat jesus and so when <laughs> on this episode when when dylan is like what is that smell you guys don't smell that like i know what that smell is oh man so this was like a very visceral episode for you it was triggering for me yes <laughs> maybe there's a little too much information or, or or reflects badly on me at the homeowner Letting uh, a rat rot in my attic because I'm too afraid to go up and look at it. I mean, dude, I don't even, I don't even like killing spiders, and I have to do it because <laughs> my wife doesn't want to, and the two year old doesn't want to, and so you know, I have to, I have to do that job, and I just like, in a very, like visceral, instinctual way, just am completely disgusted by it and really don't want to do it. That's why I was, you know, I I was Im- impressed that like Ava grabbed the dead rat and chucked it. I was also impressed that they that like at, that the 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 dead rat was convincing enough that there was like, you know, like uh, uh remains left in the box, like, oh. a, like a puddle, like a gross puddle. Ugh. And so when she grabs the rat and chucks it, like you see like the splatter in the in his stash box, but just barehanding that thing gross fucking gross yeah extremely gross and she's like ava's an interesting character i really like her character and i think the show like by giving her the closing voiceover again in this episode is kind of making her maybe the most relatable Mm -hmm. like trying to make her the way for the audience into the show i think so which is which is strange because she's a she's a like I don't know. It's a, it's a it's a strange person to have the audience relate to, because she's she's rich, she's rich, she's and a, popular, right. and super attractive, and like she's just she's not a normal person, I guess. But the voiceover today was all about her being like, "I'm flawed. We all face challenges, and I it know. feels crushing. But then we keep going. Give me a fucking break." Well, that that was <laughs> that was fine, but you know. I was I was I was with her. I was following along until she's like, and this is why I align with the mission of Vogue, which is to be a leader and inspiring. And it's like, what what does this have to do with mm. what you just said? I don't know. Well, you know, it's fine. People write bad essays in college. <laughs> what, are, what are you gonna do? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe that was like some that was actually some realism right there. Oh my god! I in, can't in even. In the fact that she did not put together like a good paragraph of things to say. Uh-huh. Well, she had to put it together when at three in the morning when she's still probably staving off a hangover. Yeah, probably pretty. I was like surprised that the show did not deal with her like definitely needing to be hungover after drinking all day. Well, to be you know to be honest, like she's drinking vodka and and uh, I guess probably like cheap whiskey straight, um, just pouring it in and just sipping at it. Uh, so she, by this point, I would imagine they're implying without coming out and saying that she's like a full blown alcoholic. And like, probably has been drinking for a while. Probably like it was started drinking like when her dad got into a bunch of shit and left. 
you know, she grew up fast, and fastest way you can grow up is by becoming an alcoholic early. Yeah, no, that's I didn't. That's a good point. It is implied that you know she would be, or the show's just glossing over it. But I mean that you can read into it and see that there's more history to it. <laughs> Speaking of the characters growing up quickly, I'm. I noticed on your notes, Dave. Dave, Dave has. Oh, these note, are my notes from last Dave week. Dave has notes from last week, and his first note uh, is they fuck in the car. <laughs> <laughs> this is a vulgar house. That was about that was about Eddie Redmayne and Caitlin, which he wasn't in this episode. Apparently, she's too busy for her boyfriend. Right yeah, now. there were no there were no boyfriends uh, in this episode. Mm-mm. Andrew uh, wrote a song. Um, for his boyfriend and their anniversary, I guess. Dylan. Dylan. Andrew is the name of his boyfriend. Yes. The song sounded uh, to me like the Charlie uh, or Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory song. Oh, really? The, That's a good one. In a world of pure imagination. That's mm-hmm. true. Mm-hmm. Listen, if you if you want to watch the episode again. Try to get that song out of your head when you're listening to his song. There's a, there's a lot of very pretty melodies in the song. There's a Coldplay cover. Yeah, there's all these cello covers of or string covers, which is a the, thing on the show now. Like yeah. they they do uh, like chamber music covers of uh, pop songs. They did yeah. Lady Gaga, which is fun. Yeah, I like it. I'm sure. into it. We were talking about how the show basically like does not really have opening credits it does not really have a theme song it has mm-hmm. like literally like eight seconds of opening credits and then it's just over and it's like is this just for when people watch it on netflix in a year from now and they're just gonna skip right past that shit like is that the idea probably i mean yeah it's just it seems to have like no interest in any sort of like opening uh segue or any sort of like opening salvo at all it's just like let's just get to this shit let's just do this there's no there's no cold open no cold close like the show is just i think maybe uh what i'm seeing with the show is it feels very uh uh, i don't mean this negatively but uh streamlined like it's just very it's like very economical storytelling Mm -hmm. it like wants to be that way it wants to be it doesn't want to get lost in the weeds that where where maybe Pretty Little Liars went. And who knows, like, you know, any show that goes on for a long time is bound to have to face that point where they either, like, you know, bloat the story in order to get more drama out of it or have to come up with a new story altogether. But regardless, um, I think I appreciate how streamlined everything feels how like we're at the third episode the shows the show knows exactly what it needs to convey uh and what the audience needs to understand and we got that and then we're ready to come back for more next week um before i forget there was something that i needed to uh rectify uh that we learned on twitter we have been talking about how it's odd that uh um it's odd that Allie hasn't brought up the fact that Mona murdered um, Cece. Right. Charlotte. Um, and we kept saying that Charlotte is Allie's sister, but they're actually half-sisters. Right. No, no, no. They're not. They're. Wait, are they half No, they're cousins because Mary Drake 
and uh, this is okay. So this is on this is someone corrected us on Twitter. This is Tom McNabb uh, at LGBT LGB Tom. Uh, he said he kept referring. You, you keep referring to Charlotte as Allie's sisters, but they were cousins. Charlotte's dad was Pastor Ted, and Mary Drake was her mom. Pastor Ted. Yeah, remember that? I I don't. I honestly don't even remember. It's. I mean, it's crammed in at the end. So basically, what's crazy is that Charlotte and Alex Drake, Alex uh, Spencer's twin, are Charlotte and Alex Drake are sisters. Uh huh. Half sisters. I feel like I need to read the Wikipedia for this again because I honestly don't even remember. Because Mary Drake is their mother. Right. And then, oh, and then, so uh, Alex Drake and Allie are half-sisters. Okay. Because they have the same dad. Right. And also, also Mr. DeLaurentis is spent. No, married. Oh, and then, so Allison... Allison, Alex, and Spencer are all half sisters, right? Except no, Spencer. Well, Spencer's twi- they're twins, so so Spencer's Spencer has the same parents as Charlotte or as Alex Drake, right? Yes, and so Spencer is half sisters with Allie, right, and is half sisters with Charlotte. Right. Okay. There we go. Okay. Okay. So cousins. Well, even so, Mona murdered yeah. her. <laughs> that shit's wild. And this person also on Twitter, Tom said uh, that Allie hated Charlotte. Was what? that true with that? I don't remember that. I mean, I don't remember honestly. Regardless, I mean, Mona fucking killed her. Yeah, it's still she's a cold-blooded murderer. Yeah. But also, it's I mean, in this wild. episode, you have Allie basically just been being like, Mona, you remember when I faked my own death? And, and Mona's like, yeah, I remember that. Like, that was pretty crazy, right? But let's continue our conversation about this murder mystery in this new town that we're a part of. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's wild. <laughs> I just really, I just keep thinking about the opening scene where Allie's telling, what, what I love about this show is you see Allie being like, I know what I'm doing. I've done this. I've totally done this stuff before. And she's telling the kids what to do. Right. She's like, follow my lead kids. Uh, and seeing like all the detective alley stuff in this episode mm-hmm. where she finds out where the cabin is and then waits for the perfectionist to leave so she can go back and inspect it some more. And she finds the rose, the rose that was on the, on Taylor's grave with the same rose. So, so that's great. And so you get to see Allie being very effective, but mm-hmm. at the same time, you have the opening scene where she's laying down the law of like how we're going to deal with this murder mystery. And the next scene, uh, you know, Claire Hodgkiss is like, damn, guess they all lied to us. Yeah. That's no, crazy. It's, it's so it's, it's hilarious. It's weird because, yeah, because Ellie has all this like misplaced confidence about her ability to like navigate a, a, a murder mystery because, you know, she's done this shit before. And then it's just like all this misplaced confidence for nothing because her, because <laughs> uh, her alibi sucks. And uh, so, yeah, so it's just kind of funny. It's a little bit of uh, shade and Freud on, on, our, on the audience's part because you're like, hmm, Allie, you don't have this as together as you think you do. Right. I mean, this this goes back to how I felt watching the first episode where it's like this show feels like it wants to be sillier. It feels like it wants to be more fun. Mm-hmm. 
and more, uh, you know, embracing the ridiculousness as opposed to like really leaning into this is a suspense thriller show. You're going to be scared because it's like we see them going to the cabin and there's no feeling of like something bad will happen. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, when somebody comes to the house and you see the flashlight coming through, it's like. And somebody opens the door and they're all staring like, oh, no, commercial break. It's like this is they're not in danger. It's going to be Allie, which it was, you right. know, it was, it was like it, it's interesting. And I, I feel like the putting the rat in the car, like the reaction to that was not fear. The reaction to that is like, I'm going to throw this rat away. This is bullshit. What the <laughs> hell? You know, and even like the clues, this was sort of like a classic PLL ism to me, like the gum wrapper yeah. clues that lead to Mason. Mm -hmm. This is like a classic, like, oh, we think this person is the villain now. And that lasts for three episodes. And then it just gets completely disregarded, like classic PLL. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, we know by episode six, we're not going to care about this plot anymore. Right. We learn a little bit more about this Mason character, uh, which Mona, in a weird way and in, in a very unprofessional way, Allie asks Mona what she knows about uh, about Mason, and Ali and Mona's response is, um, like he's he's incredibly smart. Uh, he was best friends with Nolan um, until they sort of maybe had a falling out when they both started coming to Beacon. He's uh, he's got model good looks. Yeah, he's model cute. Says model Mona. cute. Yeah, and you're just like, hmm. Either that's foreshadowing, and Mona's going to have an inappropriate relationship with a student. Uh, Actually, I don't know. That, that's got to be foreshadowing. Or it's just like a weird random comment to make about uh, a student who's... I mean, how old is Mona probably at this point? She's got to be at least... Well, we know... 10 years older than I these mean, kids. I uh, mid to late 20s. Because we know that not a lot of time has passed, probably. Well, there's the seven-year time jump. Yeah, that was it seven or five? I feel like it was five. Okay, like we'll err like we'll like on the side of caution and say it's, yeah. it's five. So they could be mid-twenties. So, yeah, so they were, so it was between graduation and then, yeah, so five. So, yeah, I guess. I mean, that's, the, I mean, that's the other thing, too. And about, then there's like, th and then you have to imagine there's probably like two or three years since the end of PLL. Right. So that's sort of the funny thing, too, about the alley dynamic with a, perfect, with a perfectionist where she's like, listen, I'm just a TA. Call me Allie. It's fine. Also, I'm going to tell you what to do because I've done this before. And Respect it's like my authority. Right. And it's like, yeah, like she's undercut on that immediately. And so we see the uh, the the fail, the 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 hubris that's going to get, mm -hmm. you know, the rug that's going to get pulled out from her feet, which which is great. It's like a really interesting way to set up the show. You know, I got to say, I think that something and I and I am not opposed to this at all, uh, but I do you get the feeling that like the show in general wants, wants to see Allie sort of like fall on her face a little bit? Like, like the show is almost like setting, setting her up for some sort of comeuppance. Like, I, I mean, they're, they're not portraying her in any sort of real negative light, but if you add up all of the ancillary facts, which is she left, uh, Emily and her two kids like moved across the fucking country. Um, she has every ability to leave the situation that she has no stake in whatsoever, but yet 
she jumps in automatically, starts taking control, and starts and, and starts essentially like setting up a rivalry with this uh, fake police officer, um, which she doesn't have to do in the first place. Well, I think the it seems like she's just like like hubris is is a good way to describe it, but it's where it's just like Allie, like go live your life, like stop fucking around with all. But I don't think we can expect anyone on this show to make any good decisions at all. (laughs) I mean, that's just what we've learned from. I mean, I think we have to kind of embrace it, and that's just what we've learned from uh, the PLL, uh, just from the writing from the PLL universe. Like we we can't expect any of these characters to do anything sensible. Right, and we can't even really expect them. It would be nice if they have some character development, mm-hmm. but you know that may or may not happen. I mean, the nice thing about having a fresh start here is there's no sort of shipping that can happen yet. Yeah. Like, there's no sort of fan army on Twitter saying you need to put these two characters together, or we're not going to watch your, excuse me, or we're not going to watch your show, or you know whatever sort of pressures. Like, this was a way of resetting things and being able to do PLL things without necessarily that kind of influence. Uh, but that being said, I mean, this show is just going to be ridiculous and it's going to do big reveals and you know what? I don't, I don't, I don't think we can expect that Allie is going to have like the rich maturity arc or Mona for that matter that Mm -hmm. we really want to see that we would love for the show to give us. I, I think if it does happen, that's wonderful, but I'm certainly not waiting for it to happen and I'm just enjoying the, uh, yeah, I mean, the way that the show has set her up to fail, and why would it do that? Where is it going to go with that? Yeah, I think I think you're right. Um, it, and the only thing that I'll, I'll say in response to that is is it does seem like Allie's the only one who's put in any sort of position where she can make a choice, and she's making the wrong choice. At least the perfection. She says, she says I have poor impulse control. <laughs> yeah, no truer thing has ever been said. Um, but like the perfectionists, they, they, uh, they don't, they don't seem to really have many choices about what they can do. They're kind of thrust into this shitty situation and they're trying to make the best of it. Mona is Mona and Mona is doing what Mona has always done. Allie is the only one in this situation who seems to have any sort of choice, like, and she's making a bad choice. And so that's why I kind of get this impression that the show is setting her up for failure or they want to... And I'm not saying this will be done with any sort of like incredible depth or patience because that's not kind of what kind of show this is. But um, it does seem like they want to approach the arc of Allie where it's just like, remember when Allie sucked? Remember when Allie was kind of a bad person? Like maybe we want to explore that. Like is that still in her somewhere? Right. We don't want to make her a villain and she'll never be a villain. But remember when she was a shitty person? Like, that's kind of what we want to get. Right. To. Which is interesting. Yeah. And like the Detective Alley stuff, I think, is great right. because it's like, you know, she doesn't have uh, Spencer or someone, these other characters to <laughs> lean on, you know, and it's like it's nice to get to see her in a position where she can do these things and and figure things out, even if it's just like, you know, going to a cabin and like parking on the street because she's actually learned something. And you can't just drive up to the murder cabin by yourself. You got to go, you know, be quiet about it. Seriously. And I mean, and I think that we've forgotten because the, the, the end of PLL was so different and Allie became such a, a prominent liar um, is that for more than half of the TV series, she was an asshole. 
She was just a shitty person. She was a shitty character. Right. Well, and yeah. she was on the run, and she was self-reliant, and so there's this right. whole aspect of her personality and of her character that we never really got a full portrayal of, and mm-hmm. this is an opportunity to show some of those skills, I suppose. I suppose. Do we care a whole lot about the perfectionists yet, or not really? Um, I don't know. I mean, they're kind of growing on me a little bit. Uh, they could be worse. It's nice to see have have see them have like lame fun together, but uh, you know, pouring packing peanuts on Caitlin's head, hilarious. Right, right. That's their big bonding. <laughs> they're, they're shenanigans. Uh, but I mean, I don't know. There's there's something interesting there. I think that. Um, <laughs> Besides Ava being an alcoholic, they need to explore some faults more, especially Caitlin. It's just like, right. So she's neurotic and anxious, but it's like, I think one thing that the show pointed out in this episode is that the, uh, they sort of, I guess what's interesting about it is like the relationship with their parents and the expectations of their parents. Mm -hmm. And that's a big part of the show. Uh, if you can find a theme outside of like, you know, doing murders because obviously Nolan has the pressure of his mom and the school, uh, to live up to, uh, Caitlin has the pressure of her, her mom's political career. Yep. But then you have Ava who's, you know, dad did crimes and is on the run Mm -hmm. and you have Dylan who we don't know anything about his parents. And, you know, he just talks about like being from a small town and, dealing with what that was like, you know, for him as a gay man. And so he, as the show tells us in this episode, he's in a very different boat from these other characters. You know, he's not a rich kid. You know, he, he does not have these sort of expectations from, uh, his, from high society to deal with. So he is really out of place. He is the odd person out, you know, and he, of the three of them, like seems the most nervous, like seems the most anxious about this whole thing or the most guilty, depending on how you want to read it. But I think that's an interesting dynamic is like, who are you doing these things for? Is it for yourself? Uh, Is it because you need to get away from something or is Mm -hmm. it to please your parents or like what, you know, what drives the perfectionists? What drives people to be these high achievers? So that's an interesting dynamic. I don't know how that really fits in with like surveillance culture or, uh, some of these other issues that the show is dealing with. No, another. I mean, there there are some issues that the show is dealing with uh, related to. I think that perfectionism pretty clearly. Um, we see even in a seemingly unrelated manner. I mean, we see uh, Dylan, you know, put on like an icy hot or some sort of some sort of like tiger balm uh, pad uh, because his practicing is hurting his shoulder too much. You know, it it could be just a a way to show more how how like how much th- their lives are full of striving for for perfection, or it could be foreshadowing that like he's gonna have shoulder problems, and so you know like be unable to play how he used to. Who knows? But it is interesting to think about the main. So much of these characters' lives are just full of these obligations and you don't even get the impression that they like what they're doing besides that they have, they feel like they have to do them and they have to succeed. Right. Um, I mean, it's something that this show I think is doing a good job of and that um, pretty little liars did too, which was different than like gossip girl or whatever, where it was like, Oh class, what's that? 
mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like, you know, in, in PLL, we don't see a whole lot of them in school, but like Emily has to go to work at the brew, you know, I mean, in this one we see, uh, what happens, you know? Yeah. He has to, Dylan has to practice, mm-hmm. you know, they have to do this canned food drive or they have to get the stuff together for this volunteer event. You know, there are like actual things, actual obligations in their lives that they have to do. And they can't just like be running around doing murder. And I thought it was nice to, to have the scene where they're talking about like, we have so much going on. This is too crazy. How can we like live this lie and, and pretend and, and be perfect essentially on top of like being these super high pressured college students. Right. You know? And they were just like, we'll, we'll make it work. <laughs> you know? But it was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. That's nice. That's a good, a good thing to do. I just want, I just want to tell them like, just, just, just go home and go to sleep. It's okay. Like you guys are fine. Just go to sleep. Um, yeah. The whole, I don't know. The dynamic is still a little bit weird to me of them being like, it, we're in deep shit and we need to protect ourselves and we all need to pretend to be the perfect posse, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, did one of you do a murder? I'm still unclear. I feel like the show is trying to convince us that Ava did not. And she's becoming trusting of the other two. Uh, but I'm not convinced whatsoever that the other two didn't, you know, do, well, mur- do murder. Also, I mean, like, doesn't, didn't Dana Booker basically tell Caitlin that they have evidence that, their alibis are bad. Like she didn't come out and say like, we know that you weren't at Allie's, but right. But basically like we have reason to believe that you are a suspect. Like, I don't know. It's, it's strange because it's just like, they're like, well, Allie is telling us that we need to just act normal. But Caitlin has information that basically acting normal is not going to work because they already have all this shit on them. Why would Claire not just like fire Allie too? Right. You know? Right. Like, what is what is the web of... I mean, this is what intrigues me about the show, is that, like, people are not making, like, good or rational decisions, and it's like, where does this take us narratively? That's... I mean, I'm way more interested in, like, what plot decisions are made just for, like, the surprise factor or the, the silly factor versus, you know, wanting to connect deeply with the characters or being really interested in, like who killed the whatever, you know, right. it's like, I just want to see what's going to happen because it's been set up in like a pretty surreal way. And I mean, I think, I think like, as you mentioned, Claire Hotchkiss is a, is a fun character to watch, but you know, practically like she did, she's lost both of her children, one to suicide and one to murder. And it's been, it's and and it's been less than a week since I'm, I'm pretty sure that according to the timeline of this TV show, it's been less than a week since he's been murdered. And not only have no police shown up on the scene, uh, but Claire seems relatively okay. Like, right. She seems pretty chill and she gets this evidence that these three kids are potential suspects. Right. And she's like, cool, let's do a Machiavellian scheme. To figure out who it is, as opposed to being like, let's arrest these fucking kids. And aren't these kids like, and also don't these kids like get counseling or something? Like, shouldn't like this person who by all means and purpose or all whatever is, is, is like there is publicly their good, their close friend. Right. And they're expected to go to class like normal. And like even when um, Ava loses her shit because Mason sits in Nolan's chair uh, and Caitlin runs out to chase after her. 
and is stopped by Dana Booker. Yeah. Dana's and Dana's like, like, what's up with you? What are you doing? And she's like, oh, I forgot my... Like, tell him I'm running after Ava because she just had an emotional breakdown in class because her... Uh, our really good friend died a week ago. Right. Or was murdered in front of us. Right. Right. Like, uh, I feel like you can... I understand that you have to push the plot forward, but at the same time, it's just like, this dude was murdered, and no one seems to be whatsoever traumatized by this guy being murdered. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the level of the level of surrealness of the show, I think, uh, is is very high. It, and even like the gum wrapper thing, it's it can like, feel a little distracting sometimes. It, yeah. No, I, I think I see that for sure. But even like the gum wrapper thing, it's like this is your clue. It's gum wrappers. Like, imagine being like the the evil genius character who did murder, and you're just like leaving your gum wrappers all over the scene of, of various places. Right. It's like, no, come on! It's you're like just throwing obvious, your gum wrapper on the goddamn it's such floor. An, it's such an obvious uh, red flag. Mm-hmm. It's such an obvious fake out. Right. And but I feel like the show knows that. I feel like it's telegraphing to us. Yes, this is totally silly. Right. And you don't know what's going on, and just hey, just enjoy, just take it easy. Don't worry about it, you know. It's like those. It's like those old serials uh, from like the whatever, like the thirties or forties, where there's a cliffhanger every week, right? And you and, and you know that the that the character is going to survive, but you still come back because there's a cliffhanger in the first place, right? No, that's totally what it is. It's like we we know that Mason is not the killer. But we're still gonna like we're still intrigued because the clues still point to him, right? And we know that in perhaps in the very next episode, we've watched no promos, but you know they'll confront him and be like, "We know you're the gum chewer," and he's gonna be like, "Uh, I'm, I, I just like chewing I'm gum." The gum master, right? Right. <laughs> you haven't seen Aquaman yet, have you? I still haven't. Okay. There's the Ocean Master in it. It's great. I'm excited to see it. Orm, the Ocean Master. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, that was... I I don't keep up with the DC movies in the same way as the Marvel movies, uh, as you know. Uh, I just saw Shazam last night. Oh, how was that? It looked good. It's enjoyable. Yeah. It's kind of... I don't know. It's fine. It looked pleasant. Yeah, it's it's extremely pleasant. I'll say that. I got to write a review about it. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. But I mean, like after like the DC, I, I, I like that it's a sign. It's a sign of the new direction for the DC universe, which is not uh, like fire and brimstone and murder anymore. Right. It's like uh, Aquaman, which is, which I really enjoyed. It's, it's just bright and colorful and stupid and super imaginative. Um, and Shazam is kind of the same thing where it's just like, okay, we're sick of we're sick of the Zack Snyder murder verse. Like let's right. let's move. Well, and he had that. that quote the other day, right, where he said, mm-hmm. like, yeah, Batman kills people. And it's like somebody on Twitter was posting like, a really great comic page where the Joker and Batman are arguing, and the Joker's like, Why don't you just kill me, man? And Batman's like, Because that's how you would see me fail, because this goes against the very core of my being mm-hmm. as Batman. Yeah. You know, and it's like Zack Snyder is just not the right person to be doing well, anything. His really. his response, I think, is so anti or antithetical to the idea of these comic book movies in the first place. Like, yeah, Christopher Nolan's Batman is dark and gritty and realistic, but when when you're telling people that they are wrong to think that a masked vigilante wouldn't murder people because that's what real life is, man. Like, you're totally 
ignoring why people want to go to these movies in the first place. That right. like they 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 can be silly escapes. It doesn't have to be totally representative of the psychotic bleakness of our society. Well, and it's just it's the basic idea of heroism. Right. That human life is sacred, and that's something that Batman appreciates because mm-hmm. his parents were murdered. Mm-hmm. So he's not out here killing people, which is why he has to face his villains over and over and over and over because he keeps sending them to jail. They keep breaking on out. Speaking of his villains, the... I mean, this is this is like the basic conceit of all superhero comics. Right. That none of them kill their their opponents, and so they have to fight them five hundred times. Right. Which the Joker movie just had its trailer, and I mean, it looks it looks dark and it depressing. honestly looks pretty good. Yeah. No, I have I have hopes for it. I don't I don't I don't have very high hopes for Todd Phillips, the director, because the movies he makes are not very good, but. Um, I don't know. It seems like he's really trying something new with this. So, the trailer was—I mean, it's a great trailer. Yeah, like the the music choices and it—it mm-hmm. it makes it feel like oh, they actually have a tone and ideas. And you know, it's really easy for a trailer to be about five times better than a movie. And if the, it, if the new, and if the new Joker movie is a total homage to uh, Martin Scorsese's The King of Comedy, great. That's a great movie. And there should be an homage to it. Sure, why not? It's a funny and weird and great movie. So bring it on. Let's put the Joker in there. Uh, which is all to say, um, yeah, Shazam is pretty good. You know? Yeah. It's 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 if you want to go see a super if you got to see a superhero movie uh, this weekend, you probably do worse than Shazam. <laughs> that's a that's a <laughs> thrilling five star. Review. One day I really would. We haven't talked about this yet, but one day I really would like to have a long discussion about Captain Marvel because I've thought about it a lot. Oh, okay. And I don't like it as much as you do. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk about the reasons why I, I don't. just I just loved it. And we could let's talk about it for two minutes. And I want to go to bed actually. Okay. But what I will say about it is, so I'm sitting in the theater watching it, and I was feeling like, man, they really figured out how to do these movies, you know. And I felt like this over the last five, six movies, you Mm -hmm. know, with, uh, infinity war and black Panther and Thor three and Spider-Man, you know, even Ant-Man and the Wasp, like all these movies are great to Mm -hmm. me. To me, they were like significantly better than a lot of the first round one, round two movies. Mm -hmm. And I felt like this movie, you know, I was watching it thinking just from the visual effects and the way it shot, like, man, what if Thor one had been this good? Like, Mm -hmm. what if this was the level of, you know, filmmaking that had been brought to that movie, you know, and it just felt like the machine that the creative process is just operating on a lot higher level. Mm -hmm. And just in general, I thought, um, Brie Larson just really inhabited the character. Like you feel like, you know, who this character is immediately. You don't need, I mean, the origin story is cool too, but like, you don't necessarily need to see her doing all this stuff because, just of the way she portrays the character. I just really connected Mm -hmm. to it. Um, Yeah. I just thought it was uh, terrific and like silly in really good ways and getting to see all these scenes with Samuel L. Jackson, like, and a, and a cat. It's just like, this is super silly. I fucking love it. Yeah. Um, And I enjoyed watching it. I have two, two main things that I feel like are preventing me from like liking it a lot. Um, The first one is, I think it has to do with that machine that you're talking about, which is I don't think the action scenes are very good. Mm-hmm. And partly I think that 
I would say it's because uh, Adam Bowden and Ryan Fleck, the directors, just they're not action directors, um, which is partly having to do with it. But also, like, the Marvel machine is such that all these big action sequences they have planned out before these directors even come on board. So it's just like, I think that like if you're if you're a director who is really um, headstrong, like maybe like Ryan Coogler or uh, Taika Waititi, like you have you're like okay, I'll, I'll do your action set pieces, but I need to have some control over over that a little bit. And so, like, you get the feeling with Taika Waititi and, and Thor Ragnarok that there's some of his flavor to some of the action sequences, and you can tell. Same with Ryan Coogler. Like, if you watch Creed and then watch Black Panther directly afterwards, you can see that this is how he directs action uh, set pieces. And I think that Ryan Coogler is, Ryan Coogler is a great action director. And I like Black Panther quite a bit. Um, but I think that's the first thing about Captain Marvel is I don't think the action set pieces are, are very good. Um, they, they seem a bit more rote than mm-hmm. other Marvel movies. The second yeah, thing... I, I, I felt like there was less action in the movie in general, yeah. mm-hmm. which didn't bother me. But yeah, I mean, I did feel like, oh, there could have been more stuff Yeah, that was a lot more about feelings mm-hmm. the, the other thing i think and this is this is a big one for me um and i think it took me a little while to figure out but now i can't like unthink it which is i don't want to give anything away for anybody who hasn't uh hasn't seen it yet but the big emotional climax of the movie is centered around her literally standing up do you remember that right yes um, and it's like, it's emotionally, it's very affecting. Like in our, in the people in our theater, you could tell like they were totally fucking into it. Um, which is great. And I love going to a movie and having that experience. And when, even if the movie isn't super great, or even if I'm not totally into it and people are cheering, it's like, yeah, that's awesome. I like that. Um, so there's this big emotional climax that's centered around, uh, her basically, rem- how do I say this? Her remembering all the times in her life when she was treated like a little girl and told that she couldn't do something and she still like stood up and she still rejected that notion and succeeded right you know uh and it comes at a point in the movie where that's a very important thing to do but the emotional impact is based on her um, is based on us understanding that she has faced a lifetime of rejection and that's essentially tied to her being a woman um and so that she's a woman who's always been told that women can't do things and she's always succeeded. The problem I think is that that's not really an idea that is really carried throughout the whole movie because throughout most of the movie, she's totally kicking everybody's ass. She's part of a, an elite intergalactic police force that within this police force, she's never once, um, been discriminated against for her gender like everyone is treated equally and she's treated as a competent person and then she comes to earth and starts fucking murdering everybody beating everybody up so it's like you have this emotional the whole emotional impact of this moment is based on her overcoming rejection but throughout the whole movie we don't see her overcoming rejection we see her just fucking being awesome the whole movie so i think that kind of dilutes the emotional impact when the time comes because it's like we're, we're, we're supposed to be like, Oh yeah, no, she's finally, she's overcoming rejection just like she has her whole life. But it's like throughout the whole movie is we've, we've never seen that rejection put in her face. Like we've never seen her really face gender discrimination in the movie up until that one last point, other than 
when we see her talk to her old friend about how women can't pilot it can't be fighter pilots it's like okay well i get that like in her past life she you know had to become a fighter pilot even though women were told that they weren't supposed to do that but we never like see that happening it's like because otherwise she's just kicking everybody's ass and she's a totally a, a functional member of this intergalactic elite team of murderers right oh uh, well so i disagree i have a different reading because the the whole opening is like her fighting jude law and him being like, you have to triumph over your emotions. You have to control yourself and be a good soldier and blah, blah, blah. And, um, I mean, yeah, I could see that there's sort of maybe, uh, trying to talk about too many topics or maybe a bit of a sort of mixed message and like, you have to control your emotions and women can't do this and blah, yeah. blah, blah. Um, but I thought it was, yeah, I, I mean, I, I just disagree. I thought the Jude Law character existed in order to be like, you have to be reined in. You're not ready. You have to be a good little soldier. That didn't feel explicitly tied to her. To maybe, her like triumphing over. Or to her, to her gender. Over patriarchy. It didn't. I mean, like, I think that it's coded so that you could probably say like, oh, he's, he's talking, he's talking in the way that the patriarchy talks to oppressed women. Um, in that, in the sense that like, he's saying like, you have to overcome emotion. You're too emotional. Right. I understand that, but I feel like it within that within the context of him being her mentor, it doesn't feel gendered. And so when when the emotional climax comes and that feels specifically gendered, it just doesn't line up for me. Hmm. And I'd probably have to see it again to really like strengthen that point, but that's I think that's kind of my big problem with the way with the emotional narrative of the movie. But also, I mean, that moment is not necessarily for us as white men to take in either. You know, well, I mean, no, the, but the power of the, but I think seeing it in the, if you were a woman watching this movie, you're probably going to have a, a more, a, you know, a deeper reaction or not even a deeper reaction, but just like a deeper understanding of seeing like the way she's treated in this movie you know, speaks to the, speaks to it in a gendered mm -hmm. way versus I, I ways in that. which we might not, you know, see that behavior as like seeing this relationship as, as the mentor relationship is not seeing it in a gendered way is easy for us to do from our perspective. Right. And I, I don't think, and I'm not, I'm not saying you're, I'm not saying it's not a valid, you know, yeah. if it didn't communicate that to you, that's a totally fair thing. And I think that's probably why I didn't feel like, I guess to me then, um, what I, and again, like, who, like, who am I? My my opinion sort of matters the least in this case. But but one of the things about her kicking ass, I think, is the show or the movie telling you, of course she can do these things. Mm -hmm. Of course she can kick ass. Yeah. And the people who are wiping her, literally brainwashing her to think she can't, mm -hmm. right? Like that's the point that of course she can do these things. Yeah. And so that's what the movie shows us. It doesn't show us that there's legitimacy to what Jude Law is saying to her or, or to her being her or Monica being able to pilot, mm -hmm. right? There is no legitimacy to it. That's the, that to me is the message of the movie. Right. Yeah. I guess, I mean, you know, um, I think personally I, I, I felt like that, Mm. But yeah, I, I mean, see, I see what you're the, saying the because Jude if you Law come treatment, into this, 
the Jew, I mean, to me, it's like, yeah, I mean, she is a soldier in this crazy space force mm -hmm. and there's men and there's women and it doesn't really feel, yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't feel in that moment, you know, in that, in those opening scenes, like you're out in space, like this sort of typical gender roles don't necessarily apply. Right. Which, it doesn't really, I, I do agree. Yeah. It doesn't, it's not like as flagrant as maybe it would be if you started with her trying to getting rejected from flying a fighter plane, fighter jet. You know, and I, and I don't, and I don't need the first, uh, uh, Marvel, the first MCU movie with a woman as a protagonist to be about that. Um, even if, uh, a lot of people wanted to make it, to make it about that, because that's great. If you want to do that, that's fine. Uh, but at the same time, I feel like, The, the so so much of the emotional impact of the movie is based on that idea that I just don't feel like um, it's as earned as it could have been. Uh, and to me, that part feels like it is like a hair's breadth away from being a great moment, like a truly great earned moment. And because it because it doesn't set it up for me, then it feels like almost it almost feels like that Gillette commercial, the the best a man can get commercial. Like it's it's very much got a the idea behind it is a good thing, but in the end, it just feels like cheap sentiment that sells well. It made me cry, and then I was super <laughs> stoked when she immediately becomes super powerful and like goes out into space yeah. and punches the plane. Well, it's also it's also like the you know the whole relationship, and I didn't even think about this until afterwards, which is how well coded it was. The whole relationship between her and her best friend it was obviously coded as a lesbian relationship, right? And the fact that Marvel like, I just I mean I grant granted this is a billion dollar enterprise, and so they're gonna go for how how can they appeal to the most people po as possible and they're not going to just come out and you know like just be like yes not only is this our first uh female marvel protagonist but also she's gay like that just seems like a bridge too far for marvel at this point but for disney for disney right correct um speaking of disney freeform <laughs> which is the the network that the perfectionist is on disney owns the perfectionists as a it is who knew that Pretty Little Liars was a Disney property? I did not. Yeah, I know. You got to make all those, put all those pieces together. So the Pretty Little Liars could exist in the same universe. You know what I just realized? Pretty Little Liars expanded universe. The Pretty Little Liars are Disney princesses. Hmm. That's true. Right? That's an intriguing thought. Right. Uh,. I forgot what I was going to say about Captain Marvel. Oh, what I was going to say was uh, this coded relationship. Like, I feel like they could have. It just there there, it are, too, there are too many things that could. There are not too many. Coded. I mean, yeah, there, yeah. I, I don't. I saw a lot of people talking about that. Yeah. Uh, after the movie came out and being like, "Yeah, this was really obvious. Like, they're literally, you know, they're basically living as a couple and and raising this daughter. And uh, how do you not see what this is? And it's part of the. It speaks to like part of the you see it in like the level of frustration that Monica has mm -hmm. uh, in, in her, her friend not remembering anything and not being able to connect. And it's like, yeah, this, this is like more than a best friend situation. Mm -hmm. So it is, you know, it is unfortunate that the movie didn't go there. Especially now that like Tessa Thompson and Brie Larson are having this like weird uh, shipping flirtation on Twitter uh, between Tessa, Tessa Thompson who played Valkyrie and, um, in Ragnarok, and who I believe is going to be in um, a 
Avengers Endgame because she was not uh, raptured away. She was not snapped away. Um, she's there's been some posters that she's been on, but like they're you know they're being very public about this like oh wouldn't it be cute if Valkyrie and Captain Marvel like shipped right you know but it's just like okay so this is this popular thing on Twitter it's like people I mean I don't know I just I, then I you like, should put it in your movie right then just be more honest about what you're doing right and to me to me maybe that the the maybe what bothers me the most about this. And I'll wrap this up. But what bothers me most about uh, this emotional climax in this movie is it feels like it's not as honest as it could have been. Because I understand what they wanted to do, but I just don't feel like there is that. I don't feel like it was earned at that point. In the right. Movie. I mean, I did think that you know the whole flashback memory unveiling, blah blah. You know, I was I wasn't really. I didn't, I didn't really care. Mm-hmm. You know, it's been, it took, takes up so much of the movie. He's just trying to figure out who she is. And it's, you know, it's fine. It's interesting. The origin story is cool, but, um, you know, I mean, it kind of was what it was, you right. know, it wasn't as interesting as like a movie like Spider-Man was way more interesting to me because it's like, he's already Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. He's doing his thing. You just see him living his life. And that's more interesting than telling you, you know, why he's driven to do X, Y, Z. It's a problem with Solo. You know, I just want to sure. see, so I just want to see Han Solo be Han Solo. I don't need to know why, he, why he, how he got yeah. the Millennium Falcon and why he calls Chew, Chewbacca Chewy. Right. Or how he got those fucking dice. Who gives a shit? Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's like, it's, it, it was, that movie was super weird because it's like, who is this made for? Is right. It's made for people who like grew up watching Star Wars and reading 5 million Star Wars books and are like, I need to know the encyclopedia version. I need to read like the Wikipedia page about Han Solo. Wikipedia. The Wikipedia. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I need like the movie version of that. Mm-hmm. Like why not just make a good movie? Right. Just make a story. Yeah. It was a good story. Uh, yeah. I mean that movie was like pretty obviously a failure and like a reason for, you know, them to make less Star Wars movies and and so on. So you oh, know. it functionally ended their all their enormous like uh, like one standalone story per year franchise options. They had a they had a uh, the young like Ben Kenobi movie that they pretty much put the uh, put the gabosh on. Like they see, but that I would watch. Right, that it, would right. be an interesting movie. Well, that's if they, if they let if they actually gave some sort of creative control to the directors. And like if you know, like Phil Lord and uh, or um, what's his name, Lord and Miller, they they were going to do solo. They basically got fired from the project, and they brought in Ron Howard, the safest choice imaginable. And then what did they get? The safest movie imaginable. Right. I don't think I think the issues were for one the script, but also just casting. I don't know. I can't remember. I don't think we've talked about this movie on the podcast. Probably no, we haven't. just casting this guy who was like a charisma vacuum, <laughs> who, who never. I mean, like yeah. think about making this movie with Chris Pine or Jake Gyllenhaal or someone with like fucking any screen presence at all, mm-hmm. right? Like this movie becomes five times more interesting if you have someone with any charisma or. or I mean, this guy's not a bad actor, but he's not good at being Han Solo. No. And it's just like the whole movie, you're like, I, I thought some of the things they set up of like why he is emotionally removed and some of the origin story things were cool. The emotional journey he goes on is fine. Mm-hmm. But it's like you have this guy who certainly is not Harrison Ford and just it, you can't tell if he's trying to be Harrison Ford or if he's trying to be this character who's going to grow into this 
or you know, it, none of it was. It's like compelling. an S- it's like an SNL impression of Harrison Ford. Right. It's it's more about it's it's yeah it's not he's not actually trying to be to be Han Solo he's trying to act like Harrison Ford, which I think is probably it's a hard distinction to verbalize but I is it I think it's a big distinction in my head, you know where it's just like it's a, it's like it's just kind of like a, a shoddy impression. Well, it's just one of these things where I you know it's one of the weakest performances I've seen in a movie like ever. Mm-hmm. You know, and you think about the original Star Wars and just like the level of magnetism coming off of every single person in those movies. Mm-hmm. And even like the new Star Trek movies, which are not all very good, but the first one certainly is great. The first mm-hmm. reboot. Yeah. And they're playing these iconic roles and some of them get closer than others. I think Chris Pine is does a great riff on Kirk. Uh, McCoy is like pretty clearly just not as good, you mm-hmm. know, as, uh, as DeForest Kelly, but you know, they, they get pretty close. They do a nice job. You, you see how it's possible to inhabit these extremely iconic roles and right. bring something to it. And then you have this solo movie, which is just like a fucking disaster. Well, it's the difference between like trying to make a trying to like, like what the Star Trek movies are doing that takes place in an alternate universe. So they're like, they're different. They're the same, but they're different. You know, with with the Star Wars, it's like trying to fill in gaps, filling gaps that you never even knew that you wanted, but they're trying to put it there. It's like the same thing with like Rogue One. It's like it has to somehow lead directly into A New Hope. Like, why? 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 Why do we? Why do we need this sort of like obsessive completion to everything? Just like let let some of those gaps exist in our brains. Like it's fine. We right. don't like fuck we don't need all that shit also uh we can stop talking about all the movies we've seen since we last recorded so our many movies but uh the i think another major failing of solo besides everything that we mentioned is that you have this new this new droid who is like a, you know like a droid's right a droid's rights droid um uh that like lando's in love with you know i don't remember what her name is um Lando's in like love with this droid uh, who has a direct connection to the Millennium Falcon. One thing leads to another. The droid is damaged. The droid needs to upload her whole consciousness into the Millennium Falcon, but is basically like enslaved to the Millennium Falcon. Uh, so not only does Lando like love this or lose this love that he has to ha- basically have her who represents freedom for droids be enslaved to this other machine. But then Lando loses her completely to Han and Chewie. Right. And seems to be okay with it. So the this like weird love of his life, he doesn't seem to really care that much about losing her, but also like her whole personality is completely devalidated by the fact that she's uploaded to this to this uh ship where she has all of her personality stripped from her. Because in whenever we see the Millennium Falcon in all future Star Wars movies, there is no sign of this droid inside of the millennium falcon right right so it's just like yeah the whole thing undercuts it just undercuts the whole character character. exactly yeah Yeah, it was really just extremely poor and lando like lando just seems okay with the fact that he you know that the the love of this like grand weird love of his life has been essentially erased i mean i wish we had just gotten like a donald glover lando movie because that's an interesting movie Mm -hmm. this was not no Agreed. You we, did a good job, though, Donald we, Glover. He did. 
We man, we haven't even talked about uh, Jordan Peele's Us, which I want to do. Oh yeah, a, a pod about, but let's not even get into it because we'll we'll be here for another hour. Yeah, no, that's okay. But that movie's great if you have not seen it. Um, God, what a tour de force. Uh, yeah, it was great. Uh, I have a review of it up on Pace Magazine. Um, let's real quick do a fake beer sponsor. Yes. What are we drinking this week? Um, uh, do you want to do the bumper? Bumper. All right, tonight I'm drinking a Phaedrus IPA from Culmination Brewing, Portland's own Culmination Brewing. Uh, it's uh, it's tasty. I predominantly have had it at the Gleason Street Pizza Parlor. Mm-hmm. They often have it on tap. So it's a good IPA. Once again, uh, this year, this season on Pretty Little Grown Men, we are only having Portland beers as well, Oregon beers probably as as our fake beer sponsors in, in celebration of uh, the perfectionist filming in Portland, Oregon. Uh, and I am once again drinking a key lime Lacroix, which is the best I, flavor by far. I agree. I by mean, far. are there are there even other flavors anymore? I mean, the grapefruit one that was pretty good. Yeah, I mean, like the the um, it was like strawberry. Is there a strawberry one or there's watermelon? Like a, there's like a cran raspberry, which is cran raspberry. Cran, ra- cran raspberry is a good standby, but key lime is is like it was a revelation when you discovered. Yeah. Key lime. Oh man, because I'd had the regular lime, which is fine, mm-hmm. and I was at my in-laws for the holidays or or whenever, and they had the key lime, and I had one, and I was like, oh no. Yeah. And just it's like, over now. I basically drank their whole carton, yeah. in the, in like the week we were there, and I have probably about two a day. And you know what? It's like a dollar a day for me to drink two of these and have something that isn't bad for me that I enjoy. And it's like, yeah, that's I'm willing Agreed. To, I'm willing to spend that dollar a day. Agreed. That's great. I totally agree. We have we have two two eight packs in our in our fridge right now. Um, I think that th- that does it for our this episode of Pretty Little Grown Men. Um, you can find us on Twitter at PLGM Podcast. And uh, it really helps us out if you go to um, iTunes uh, or any other sort of podcatcher platform and rate us and give us stars. Tell us what you think. Um, I don't remember. Do we have a functional email address? Did we ever address we, Yeah, we, we do. Okay. I don't think we've looked at it in about a year and a half. <laughs> we'll do that. We'll roll that out on the next podcast. Easy, the easiest way to contact us is through through our Twitter, most likely. Um, if you have questions, you can always DM us, and then yeah, we'll set we'll we'll make sure that by next uh, week we have uh, a functional uh, Gmail address so that you can write us any questions or corrections. Um, there is so much uh, mythology from the PL verse that we're forgetting. And so we appreciate you correcting us. Like we have so much in our heads. We're not going to get it all right. It's been a while. We're not even close. Yeah. We're so, not even, so I mean, thank this, you. Is, this is not the Wikipedia version of, of pretty little, pretty little liars. Yeah. And as, 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 as much as you might, might've liked us to, we did not, uh, just watch reruns of PLL between the finale and now. So <laughs> a lot of that is, is kind of rusty in our memories. 
Um, that said, if you want to do a shop by shop podcast about the good place when we're done with this, (laughs) I could probably be convinced to do that. (laughs) We should, we should pick just some show that nobody's watching. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, so, so help us out. Like, you know, don't be afraid to reach out to us on Twitter and, and let us know, um, if, uh, if we, if we're getting something wrong, we're totally okay with criticism, constructive criticism. Um, but until then, thanks everyone for listening. And, uh, I don't know until next time, Dave. Spearmint chewing gum, bitches. <laughs> What you're keeping, I know what you're keeping for you.